The following audio is from Fathom Church in downtown Littleton, Colorado. More information about Fathom can be found at fathomchurch.org. Well, welcome online. Great to have you with us. If you're uh, with us in person or online, we'd love for you to grab your Bible and open it up. If you brought it, I hope you did. We're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 7. If you're online, you can Google search 1 Samuel 7 or there's a Bible tab on our online platform. We're going to look at this chapter today. Uh, as you're turning there, uh, I just want to talk to you a bit, bit about online shopping, which is about right. Okay. Uh, I mean, we're coming off of the year of years, right? This year has been the year. And if there's one thing we've all learned, it's how to uh, online shop very well. I'm an expert at this. Okay. I just want you to know there is a JV, like a junior varsity and a varsity level. Uh, and I have acquired varsity status when it comes to online shopping. Let me explain this to you. Okay. You need to know two things uh, to understand how to get varsity level uh, when it comes to online shopping. So the JV move is this. Okay. And, and you know this, uh, if you're a JV online shopper, this is what you're looking for. You're looking for two words on the webpage, free shipping, right? I mean, that's it. Like, forget about it. If there's Amazon Prime has ruined us, okay? If there's not free shipping, just forget it. I don't need your product. I don't care how good it is. I'm not paying shipping. The worst is when you don't know if it's free shipping and then you get into the cart and you add your item and then it's like, oh, 12 more dollars. You're like, 12 bucks? It's only a $3 thing. I mean, it's crazy. So free shipping, but that's JV. Okay, that's JV. Let me tell you the varsity level when it comes to online shopping. And this one's a little bit more work. Okay, you don't normally plaster this on the header of their website. You might actually have to click like the customer service link to find this out. But the varsity move for how to online shop is you need to find these two words, free returns. Free returns, because it does you no good to get free shipping on a new pair of pants, put them on in your bedroom only to look a fool and then have to spend 12 bucks to send them back. Like, forget about that. I'm not paying to return something. I, I want free returns. I'm calling the sermon today, Free Returns. That's the title of this sermon, Free Returns. And I'm not talking about shopping. So we're done with that, okay? We don't have to worry about that anymore. Or pants, okay? Uh, but uh, I am talking about what it costs to return to God. Like, like what's God's return policy? Like, what, it, what does it take for us to get back to him? And I feel like this is something that most of us can relate to. I, I don't know if you're like me, but do you ever find yourself asking, why is it that I go up and down so much spiritually? Why am I up and down and up and down and close and far? And just, you know, like, we're, like we think at a certain level, we are kind of like spiritually bipolar. I don't even know if that's a real thing, but if it is, we've got it. Right? Where you're just kind of up and like one week you are a super Christian. You've got it, you're very tight with you, you're feeling good. And then the next week you're not even sure if you believe these things. Just up and down. It, it would be good to know God's return policy for us when we wander. When we wander, as we sing, we are prone to wander. So, so I just want you to know this as we get off uh, on this sermon. I have a PhD in this stuff. Okay, not really, but like, I, I'm just very well-versed in this. Uh, you know why? It, it's called youth camp. Okay, youth camp. Uh, everybody, anybody go to youth camp before? Maybe, maybe not. Okay. Uh, so for me, youth camp was the same. It was the same every single year. I started going to church when I was 16. So I went to youth camp for a couple of years. And this is what would happen. You'd show up at youth camp and, and uh, you'd get into the room and, and, and the band would start playing really emotionally charged worship songs 
right, for the, these pubescent teenagers to consume. And, and, then, and then the guy would get up there and he would preach and he'd be animated, he'd be really winsome and charismatic. And then, you know, at that point, you were only on about three hours of sleep for the whole week, right? And they've, they've hopped you up on Mountain Dew and, and Pixie Sticks at that point. So you're just like wired to the point where you would, you would dedicate your life to a Christmas tree if they all, I mean, honestly, they'd just be like, go ahead. And you'd be like, I'm in, right? Uh, that's kind of the youth camp experience. And, and listen, I would do it every year. Sometimes a couple times a year, winter camp and summer camp, right? Like through tears and snot and hugs and promises, I would say these words, God, I am never going to be the same again. I'm not going back. I'm not turning back. I sang it. Not, not turning back. I'm following you. And I would do the things that they would ask me. A youth, youth ministry, youth camps always ask you to write down your sins on a piece of paper and then do something with them. All right, so I did it. Okay, I nailed it to a cross, that piece of paper once. I, uh, I burned it in a can at one point. One point they took us out to the river. We threw them in the river, washed away my sins, right? Throw it in the river. You know, I'd bake it in a cake, eat the cake. You know, whatever they want me to do. I just do it. I don't want that sin in me, so I got to get it out. And I would always commit. I would always say, God, when I get home... I'm going to break up with her. And I'm, going to, I'm going to start respecting them. I'm going, to, I'm going to stop doing, well, pretty much everything I did leading up to youth camp. I'm just going to stop it. And, and listen, I, I got really good at being very good. I had a number of successful weeks after camp. But then it was just a matter of weeks. Or in fact, sometimes, in some instances, days, before I was back in the same old mess. It's up and down, this up and down. What's God's return policy? I mean, how do, we, how do we get back to him in a real way, a lasting way, a meaningful way? This is where Israel is in our text in 1 Samuel chapter 7. Okay, Gary taught us last week, and, and you can look again at verse 2. We won't, this isn't officially part of our text, but in verse 2, uh, it, it says that all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. All the house of Israel, all of Israel is lamenting. They're mourning. They're, they're, they're disparaging after the Lord. Why? Well, it's become very obvious. I mean, extremely obvious that Israel is not in sync with the Lord. They are not walking in the ways of the Lord and God is judging them for it. It's obvious to us, but to them, as well. I mean, remember the state of affairs at Israel, in Israel at this point. I mean, we've read at the end of Judges leading into this book that, that in that time, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. They're doing whatever they think is right. The priesthood is corrupted. They are being judged, right? The elders of Israel, they're trying to manipulate God to get their own ways, and they're being judged. And even a few weeks ago, the ark gets captured by the Philistines, and then it miraculously gets brought back into Israel. And the people misuse it. They get the ark back and they start looking on it and they start doing things that they shouldn't be doing and the Lord judges them again. Seventy are killed. It's clear that, that Israel is not in sync with the Lord right now. And today's passage, you, you, you can track 20 years of time between the end of chapter 6 and the beginning of chapter 7. We are now 20 years later and the house of Israel is lamenting. They're, they're feeling what I started to feel at youth camp. This sorrow over how far a distance had 
had, had, had gathered between me and the Lord. They're feeling deeply their disconnect with God. And their question is, does God offer free returns? Like, how do I get back to him? So our text today, which actually begins in verse three, uh, is where Samuel shows up again. Now, we have not heard from Samuel since chapter three. We've been away from this dude for, uh, for, for a few chapters. And now in the midst of this mess that Israel is in, God has brought a new leader, a new spiritual leader, a prophet, Samuel, to bear. So you have a people who are feeling deep sorrow and regret and remorse and in walks this new godly leader. But how do you make sure that that feeling that Israel is feeling isn't just like a quick youth camp experience? How do you make sure that it actually lasts? Because listen, when you have feelings of sadness or regret or lament over, over this disconnect from God, that's good. But, but how do you actually make sure that it sticks? How do you actually return to God? I, I'm going to point out three things I think Samuel shows Israel, and they do, that ensure us that that lament doesn't wane, but rather that it actually is steadfast and remains. So this is what we're going to see, three things. Uh, let's jump in to 1 Samuel chapter 7, uh, verses 3 and 4. So Samuel said to all the house of Israel, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the, the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth and they served the Lord only. Okay, the first thing that Samuel tells God's people to do in light of their remorse, in light of their lament, in their desire to return to the Lord, the first thing he tells them to do is to repent. He tells them to repent. You see, just because someone has emotional sorrow or remorse, that does not necessarily mean that they are repentant. There's a difference. John the Baptist will put it this way in Matthew chapter 3, verse 8. He says that we are to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. You see, the truth is you can be very sad, Right? You, can, you can be very remorseful and still not be repentant. Samuel says in verse 3, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then... And then he gives an action. He says, If you're returning with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Asheroth from among you. You see, this is what he's doing. He's, he's calling them to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. So how do you know that you're not merely remorseful over your sin, but rather repentant? How do you know the difference? Well, the question is, are you speaking words of repentance and living out actions that demonstrate your repentance? Are you speaking words of repentance and evidencing those words with your actions? So the idolatry that Israel is, is wrapped up in at this point, the, the idolatry that they're in is actually sexual in nature. Doesn't seem it on the surface level, but let me give you a little history lesson here, okay? They, they mention the Baals and the Ashtaroth. 
Okay, now in this culture around Israel, the pagan culture known as the Canaanite culture around Israel at this time, in order to get fertility for your spouse or, or for your herds or for your crops, you had to worship these, these gods, the Baals or the Ashtaroth. And part of the worship experience was to have sex with uh, these prostitutes, these cult prostitutes in those temples, Okay, which is essentially like when you would do that, it was worship and you were essentially trying to remind those gods in that physical act, you were trying to remind them to bless you with fertility. That was how they worshiped. My guess is not a lot of Canaanites thinking, I'm not getting anything out of church right now. Am I right? Ain't no Canaanite saying I'm coming once a month. Forget about it. I got better things to do on Sundays. No, no, they're there all the time. Okay, that's just... You want church to be filled, I guess you go Canaanite in your style, okay, of ministry. But you see, the call to put away these gods, listen to me, it would have been incredibly difficult. It's not like you just go take that little wooden altar out of your closet and burn that thing in the fire and call it good. This is now intertwined with lust, passion, carnal desires, this, this would have been incredibly difficult. When, when, when Samuel says, put away those idols, it's going to take some work. Listen to me, church. Remorse is easy. It's easy to feel bad. Repentance is costly. It costs something. And if you're honest with yourself, is there any evidence that you are actually repentant of your sins? That's a question we all have to address. Is there any evidence of actual repentance or do you merely feel sorry about your sin? You see, the difference between remorse and repentance has nothing to do with the intensity of emotion that you feel, but it actually has a lot more to do with its duration over time. It's not how bad you feel, it's, it's what you actually do in response. Cheap grace, cheap repentance is merely remorse. Now you may ask yourself this, okay? Uh, well, I, I, I don't know if I'm truly repentant. Am I truly repentant or am I just remorseful? I mean, I feel bad, but, but am I actually repentant? Because I'm struggling, pastor. I'm struggling with sin. Like sometimes I fall, sometimes I doubt, sometimes I grow cold. Like, does that mean I'm not repentant? Well, maybe, maybe, but maybe not, maybe not necessarily, okay? You see, even in the Bible, the greatest heroes of our faith in the scriptures often will fall back into old sinful habits, sometimes really bad ones, like ones that would make the, the list of really bad sins, right? So Peter, he denied Jesus three times on, on a night that was pretty important, Right? I mean, I mean, one of Paul's traveling companions, this guy named John Mark, we read about him in the book of Acts, uh, he abandoned the mission field with Paul when it became very difficult, only to be later restored by a guy named Barnabas, but Paul wasn't even ready to get back out there with him. I mean, King David, you know King David, we'll get to him a little later in 1 Samuel, but he committed adultery, he murdered, he lied about it, and refused to repent for nearly a year until his son was born, and he was afraid he was going to lose his son. 
you do realize we wouldn't let King David hold babies in our nursery. You're right. Like we're not hiring King David at Fathom Church. You understand that, right? Abraham doubted God so severely that he told another man that his wife was his sister just so that he would save his own skin. You know, that's bad marital advice. I never tell anybody that in premarital counseling. Yeah, just say she's your sister. Yeah. No. Listen to me, as a believer, you will struggle. Hear me. I will struggle. You will struggle with residual sin for the rest of your life. You will. But the question is, what do you do when you fall? Do you you repent? Do you repent to him? Do you return to him? Or do you you hide? Do you run from him? You ask, hey, how do I know if I'm truly repentant? Listen, the best proof of your repentance is your tenacity. Martin Luther said that every Christian, the, the job of the Christian is to repent every single day. Ongoing repentance. So this is the first thing that Samuel directs them in, okay? Repentance is more than just the feeling of remorse and regret. It says that they're lamenting over their sin, over this disconnect from the Lord. But is there going to be actual evidence of this? Are they actually going to repent and let it cut into their core behaviors? Well, they do. They put away their foreign gods. They bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Now, let's see what happens next. The next point, look at verse 5. So then Samuel said, gather all Israel at mitzvah and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at mitzvah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, we have sinned against the Lord and Samuel judged the people of Israel at mitzvah. Now, when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at mitzvah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel And when the people of Israel heard it, they were afraid of the Philistines. Now, pause for a second here, okay? The the Israelites are actually in the process of repenting. They're doing the work. They're putting away their false gods. They're praying and they are fasting, okay? They are at mitzvah doing these worshipful acts. And the Philistines hear word of this, all right? And, And they're like, now's our chance, Let's make a move against our arch enemies, the Israelites. So the Philistines gather at the borders of Mitzvah to go to war with Israel as Israel is worshiping and repenting. That's what's happening here. Now the question is, what is Israel going to do? Because their old way, are they going to revert to their old patterns here? Like, are they going to say, Samuel, hey, let's pause on this worship thing. We'd love to return and repent right now, but we got a bigger issue. The, the Philistines are on our borders, so we got we to gotta drop this. We got to go to war. Like, let's get the ark again. We got it back now. God must be in our camp again. We, we got to go to war. We got to win this. So they, like, we need to win this battle. Do they do that? Well, let's look. Verse eight. The people of Israel then said to Samuel, do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hands of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel and the Lord answered him. 
As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel, but the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion. And they were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mitzvah and pursued the Israelites and struck them as far as Betkar. Okay. The Israelites do not revert to their old ways. They don't move back to weapons or, or to a gimmick. They don't try to manipulate God or, or to rely on their own strength. No, first and foremost, they say, Samuel, hey, continue praying for us. They, they first repent. And then the second thing that they do that I think is a mark for us, they rely. They first repent and then they rely on God. They turn to him in desperate prayer. They're desperate in their prayer. They, they show complete reliance on God through the faithful prayers of this prophet Samuel. And again, we said this at the very beginning of this series. I think it was week one of this series. But, but do you see prayer as your last resort? Or do you see it as your first response? Do you see prayer as something that is necessary now or is it something that you just do when all the other options have run out? I mean, haven't you seen this before in your life? If you're a Christ follower, haven't you seen this in your life? Like how God seems to shave away everything that you thought you could depend upon until you finally realize that all you have really is, is desperate prayer for him. It's all you ever had to rely completely on the mercy of God. I mean, that this is what we did this week, church, as we prayed and we fasted for baby Lenny. Like hundreds of us praying and fasting. So we turned to the Lord. Lord, we have to rely on you. There's nothing we can do. Call more doctors? No, we're going to pray and we're not going to eat until you heal. We rely on God. But I... There's also a piece in here that I want you to note because uh, there's something else going on here that's really important. The, the people of God are not relying solely on their own prayers. Do you notice this? Like they, they, they beg Samuel to pray for them, which is interesting. And, and Samuel is in this moment acting as an intercessor for them. And this is a foreshadow for us, church, like a gospel moment of foreshadowing here, because don't you see the same offer applies to us today? Like, no, you don't get to ask Samuel to pray for you. And we don't believe like, like other denominations, maybe like the Roman Catholics, that, that you can pray to Mary or that you can pray to the saints and that they will pray for you. But, but just like Samuel, this prophet, okay, this priest, we have a better interceder. If you are a follower of Christ, you have a better prophet. You have a better priest. And this is why I had uh, the, the video read Romans chapter 8 this morning. I'll read this again to you, okay? This is from Paul. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he now, not also with him, graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, and here it is, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. 
Who then shall separate us from the love of God, love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? The obvious answer is no. None of these things. Jesus Christ himself is praying for you right now. Nothing ought to move you and strengthen you and encourage you more than the fact that there is one who intercedes for you right this moment. I mean, this is true in our earthly relationships, right? And when someone prays for you, this is true. Like I, I, when I got my first job as a youth pastor, I had just graduated college. So I was like 20, 21 years old, got a job as a youth pastor in Arvada. And right after being hired, they had already made plans to take the high school students to this uh, like retreat conference thing in Tennessee. And so I'm going to go with them, even though I don't really know these kids very well. I, well, I'm like the brand new youth guy. They have all these relationships with the volunteer leaders. And I'm just kind of going along trying to get to know kids, okay? Uh, be the new youth pastor to them. So, so we're going to go on this trip. Right before we go on this trip, uh, my parents let me know. I have dinner with my dad, and he informed me that after a long, long time, uh, my parents decided that they were going to get divorced. And so it was, I mean, it was mere days before I'm to leave on this first youth trip as a youth pastor that my parents say, hey, we're, we're, we're done. Um, and so I'm just starting to process that when we leave for this trip. I'm just starting to kind of think about that. Uh, and, and so we get into the trip a few days into the trip and I'm leading like a small group breakout session with about six high school boys. Okay. So we're in this little breakout um, moment and it comes time in this, in this little breakout for us to share about what's going on in our lives and, and to ask for prayer requests. So we're in this circle and I'm, I'm the new youth guy. I don't know these kids well. So I'm like, I'm going to, I'm going to model vulnerability. I'm going to, I decided I'm going to model vulnerability and share what's, what's going on with my parents back home. I feel like it was just a moment that I could, could really lead them well. And actually I thought, Hey, I'm going to start this thing off by being the wise and strong youth pastor who's vulnerable. And these kids are going to see a model of Christian maturity. And I'm just like, let's, let's do this. So I start sharing And as I'm telling them that my parents have just let me know they're getting divorced, a wave of emotion just hit me. And I'm I'm talking to them and I just break down and I start weeping. And I just, in front of these boys who I'm trying to impress, who I'm trying to, to get to know, I don't even know some of them. And I just start weeping. This new youth guy, a puddle of emotions in front of these young boys. I didn't even know how hard it had been hitting me, my parents' separation. But then an amazing and unexpected thing happened. Um, these 13 and 14 and 15-year-old boys, six of them, they come around me and they laid hands on me. They didn't know me. I didn't know them. But they laid hands on me and they prayed over me. And they started praying over me and they started praying for my parents and for my family and for my heart. And these, these teenagers just started praying. And listen, some of these kids were barely Christians. I mean, the praise they prayed, the praise they prayed, prayed were like, I mean, straight heresy, all right? Like half of it, it was like, no, that ain't right, you know? Like, um, but they, they prayed over me. And I don't know, as I think back, I don't know if there was a more impactful moment in processing my parents' divorce right at the offset, outset uh, than, than with those boys praying over me. 
There's just something about it when someone prays for you, that it moves you, that it encourages you, that it lifts you up. Hear me, how much more to know that the one who intercedes on you is Jesus Christ at the right hand of God the Father. In Israel's repentance here, they now live it out by completely relying on God to save them, and he does. We just read it. He, he saves them. The Lord thunders. He throws the Philistines into confusion, and they are ultimately defeated. They repent and they rely. But there's one more thing that Samuel teaches us and let's finish our text. Let's look at verse 12. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mitzvah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, till now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel from Ekron to Gath. And Israel delivered their territory from the hands of the Philistines. There was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. Okay, right here. We repent to God. We rely on God. And then third, we remember God his faithfulness to us. We repent, we rely, and we remember. The Israelites have repented. They put away their false gods. They have relied on God in desperate prayer and God delivers them. But now Samuel says, hey, we don't just move on from here. Let's set up a stone. Let's call it Ebenezer which means stone of help. Why would we do this? Why wouldn't we just move right back into our normal life? So that we'll remember that the Lord helped us here. So that we won't ever forget what happened at mitzvah. Oh church, we are so prone to forget God's faithfulness to us. See, when we're in the middle of a trial in a storm, it's so difficult to see the hand of God there. It's unbelievably difficult in a really hard time to see what God's doing. I mean, how many of you, if you're Christians in here, how many of you have been able to look back at your past and, and as you look back, even some of the things that you thought were unfair and terrible have turned out to be his grace for you. I mean, even some of the th- times you thought you're being attacked They're really actually God working in the details of your trial for your good, right? I mean, even secular people believe this. Hindsight is 20-20, right? That's like, we see this in the scriptures. But man, in the present, it is so hard to see. That's why Samuel raises up an Ebenezer. He raises up an Ebenezer. I've illustrated the Ebenezer this way in the past. I'll do it again. Uh, but a few years back, we were at uh, this ranch that we, my family vacations at, and I met a guy who is a hunter, professional hunter. He has a TV show where he films himself hunting animals and is famous. 
I was like, wow, I want to be friends with this guy, right? Uh, so we became friends. Uh, a couple years back, although my wife would say, you're acquaintances, whatever, all right? Um, he is really cool. Uh, but listen, I, I'm friends with him on Instagram, which means we're not really friends. But uh, he was on this hunt. After I met him, he was on this hunt, and he was putting it on Instagram, and so I was messaging him and, and uh, asking him some questions about it, and he messaged me back to try and explain to me how to blood trail a deer, okay, uh, which I did not know how to do because I do not hunt. Um, I, I'm not, I have nothing against hunting. If you want to hunt and bring me meat, I will consume the meat. I like the meat. I just don't have time to hunt the meat and all that goes into that. But uh, So he's trying to tell me how to blood trail an animal, and I felt like this is a helpful tool for us, so I'm going to tell you how to blood trail an animal. Okay, After you shoot a deer or an elk, okay, whether it's with a bow or with a rifle, after you shoot an animal, you got to try and find it. Okay, That was news to me. I didn't know that you had to try and find it. I just thought you shot it. They fall dead. You got a dead deer. Apparently, if you kill these things correctly, they wander. Like they walk away and bleed out somewhere else. And sometimes as they wander away, they wander away from your view and into the woods. And so what happens is they have to blood trail an animal. So this is what they do. They scour the ground for a piece of evidence. Like they try and find a little bit of blood or hair or something. Like you get out of your, I don't know, stand or from behind your rock. Can you tell I, I don't hunt? You, you, wherever you were hiding and you shot the thing, you get out and you try and find like a mark, a blood or some hair or something like that. And then you mark it with some bright colored tape. Put a little tape right there. And then you start walking in the direction that you think the animal went until you find the next little piece of blood or you know hair or whatever. You mark it again and you just keep going. And, and you mark it and you keep going. And you find more and you mark it and you keep going and you mark. I don't see anyone writing this down. Lori, why aren't you writing this down? I'm telling you how to blood trail a deer. This is important. All right, whatever. Now, inevitably, here's what will happen. You'll come to the point where like the ground will open up and the, 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 the forest will kind of open up a little bit more and you'll lose the trail of the animal and you won't know where it went, okay? The evidence becomes more and more difficult to find because he's nowhere around you. And, and that's when, my friend told me, he said, that's when those little markers come very much into play. Because at that point, you can look back over your shoulder and see these bright colored marks of tape and identify the trail that that animal might have been on. Because this is what he told me. Michael said this. He said, what he did in the past will help you to understand the direction he's now going. Church, the Ebenezer is an Old Testament blood trail. It's, it's a mark for God's people to turn and see God's faithfulness to them in the past. So that when they are trying to find themselves, when they find themselves in those dark places where they're just having uh, an immensely difficult time to see any evidence of God's faithfulness, where are you, Lord? They can turn around and they can remember the blood trail. They see the Ebenezer and they remember what happened at Mitzvah. Now listen to me, you and I, we need some Ebenezers in our life. You need to be able to look back over your shoulder at the marks of God's faithfulness to you. What are some points in your life where where God did something? Where he showed you something or he provided you with something? Like we need to remember the blood trail. 
And, and frankly, you know, the, there's this number one, always present Ebenezer that we can always kind of come back to. Like, if you want to know what that mark is that you can look at when you wonder if God will be faithful to you, it's really the thing that's right over my shoulder here. It's the cross. This is our Ebenezer. This is our primary Ebenezer. Because Romans 5, 8, Paul says, but, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Right? You want to, you're wondering, does God really love me? You look at the cross. You look at the cross. While you were a sinner, how, question, how many of your sins were past sins when Jesus died on the cross? This is not a trick question. All of them. While you were still in your sin, Christ died for you. The cross is the empirical evidence to quote Samuel that until now the Lord has helped us. So, so church, here's my, my plea with you. God offers free returns. You don't have to search around on that website anymore. You don't have to click customer support to figure this out. He has free returns. Maybe you're feeling this today. Maybe like it's a youth camp moment for you, okay? Maybe you're feeling this lament. You are lamenting that you have kind of gotten away from the Lord at some point and in some way you've kind of moved away from being tight with him and today you're feeling that. You're lamenting after the Lord like Israel was and I would just ask you to seriously consider the aspects that Samuel models for us. Like if, if you would say, honestly, I, I, I want to return to the Lord with all my heart, then what do you need to repent of? Like what are the things you need to put away? Where, where is this going to cut and cost you more than just remorse? Where do you need to repent? And maybe in what ways do you need to rely on God in this? What are the desperate prayers that you need to start praying or that goodness you need to offer as a prayer request to us so that we, I'm not Jesus, I'm not Samuel, but I'll pray for you. The elders, the staff, we offer this every week. We will pray for you. We'll intercede alongside you. Where do you need to rely on God? And maybe what, what marks or, or Ebenezer's do you need to remember from your life? What's that blood trail over your shoulder that you need to look back on because you just don't see any evidence of his love for you right now? But listen to me. Never once has he left you. Never once has he abandoned you. Never once has he forsaken you. He did that to his son so that you could say, never once. Till now, the Lord has helped us. I mean, this is what we do every week when we come to the Lord's table in communion. I say it every week. I read 1 Corinthians 11 and I say this, do this in remembrance of me. It's a blood mark. And listen to me, sometimes it's the only blood mark that will sustain your walk with Jesus because sometimes you won't see him anywhere else except for at the table. This is the Lord who has helped us until now. He has helped us. Would you pray with me? Hey, Father, I, um, I am just so thankful for this, this scriptures, uh, the scripture text today. I'm so thankful for how 
six chapters, it feels like Israel is so far out of sync with you. They are so far from you. They, are key, they continue to make these bonehead decisions. And, and in chapter seven, you show them how to return to you. Because, Lord, in my life, I, I constantly find myself at this place where, where I'm just not where I want to be, where I've wandered a bit, where I've strayed a bit, where I've ceased to follow you as tight as I would want to, and I've lost the, the trail, as it were. Lord, thank you for this encouragement from, from the book of 1 Samuel, that, that we can come to you, we can return to you, that you offer free returns, but that we must repent and we must rely and we must remember. Holy Spirit, I, I pray you'd lay on hearts and minds right now things that, that might be in our own lives that we might need to repent of or, or areas that we might need to rely on you more in desperate prayer or, or things that we just need to remember. God, you are so good to us. You have never once let us down. And what you did in the past is the best, the best hope we have for what you'll do in the future. Lord, let us return to you wholly in a lasting way. God, we thank you for this. We pray that it would change us. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Spirit.